Please remain standing if you will and turn in your Bibles to Micah 5. Micah 5, and we're going to begin in verse 1. Micah 5 is kind of toward the end. It's not quite there at the end. So if you get to the end, back up from the Old Testament a little bit. Um, Even pastors have a hard time finding Micah, so it's okay. Uh, Take an extra minute there. Micah chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 to 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel." And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Let's pray. Father, we come now to your word, and we pray that you would do that work that only you can do, that work that we so desperately need. Would you take your word and make it effective in our hearts and minds? Give us ears to hear you, cause our hearts to be changed according to your Spirit's work and your will. And Lord, give us great joy in that you have given us your word, and you have given us the word made flesh. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. So this Advent season, we have been looking at some of the reasons that Jesus came, and this is yet another reason to glorify the Father. I hope that you have seen a couple of things. One is that as we've looked at each theme, we've seen the other themes repeated. Have you seen that? I've pointed them out sometimes, and in some ways we've seen not just from one text that Jesus is a ransom for many, but many texts. We've seen from not one text that Jesus overcomes the work, works of the devil, but from many. The same is true from the covenant. And so these reasons are not as I said in the beginning, not a top five list. They're not the only reasons, but they are reasons that are thoroughly biblical, reasons that we see in Scripture. The other thing I want, want us to, to see as we finish up, not just today, but, but on Christmas Eve, uh, is that the reasons are interconnected. Jesus didn't come just to do one thing. He accomplished many things, and all of these things are connected together. And this is one of those connecting reasons that the, the, the reasons Jesus came all are connected to the glory of the Father. In his high priestly prayer to the Father, Jesus said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And then later in verse 26 of John 17, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And so there's this continuation that Jesus accomplishes through his work and ministry that his name continues to be made known uh, because of that, meaning that he gives glory to the Father. And then that could be a sermon in and of itself that the reasoning that he bases this on is so that the love that he and the Father share might be in us, something that we can think about and consider. 
Well, when Jesus came in his birth, God revealed himself in the clearest way possible. This is something that the writer of Hebrews captures in his opening words when he writes, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We can say that Jesus reveals the Trinitarian God's plan of redemption in his ransom, that he reveals God's power over sin and death in his defeating the works of the devil, and God's covenantal promises and how he fulfills those promises. All of this Jesus does to glorify the Father. And in turn, the Father glorifies the Son. We see this in the life and ministry of Jesus at the very beginning uh, in His baptism, all the way through that the Father glorifies the Son as well. And so we see this with the Holy Spirit, this oneness, this unity of the Trinity. In Micah 5, I want us to consider four ways that we see that the Messiah, Jesus, would glorify the Father. That He came as the Word, in the name, as the light, and as our peace. God spoke through Micah the prophet so that His people would not know just where, which is what Micah 5 is typically known for. It tells us where the Messiah is going to be born, but also what He would do for his people. Now, Micah 5 is a, is a minor prophet. He's a, it's a, a book of announcement. And as many of the prophets did, they announced judgment. And most of them announced judgment toward Israel because of their sin. And this is no exception. Assyria would come, led by Sennacherib. And that story is a powerful one because it is a story of God's mercy and the fact that they initially turned from their sin and God relented the attack. The attack didn't happen until they turned, what? Back to their sin. Uh, this is something we see as a pattern in Israel, but something we identify in our own life. And the, the judgment eventually came. And so it's in this context then of, of, of pronouncement of judgment that Micah writes to call to muster the troops. And then he says, with a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. To be struck in the face is something of humiliation. It's, something, it's a very personal attack. This isn't someone who's coming at you from far away, who's throwing spears or shooting arrows. This is someone who has breached all of your defenses and gotten close enough to come up and hit you in the face. And this is what's going to happen to Israel. All of their defenses are going to be breached, and they're going to suffer a humiliation. But there's also this hint, isn't there, of something else. Do you see it? There's a little hint of what would happen to the Messiah. He too would be struck in the face, wouldn't he? He too would suffer a great humiliation. Matthew's gospel captures this at the trial of Jesus in Matthew 26. They spit in his face and they struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? So this is this, this dismal news that... Remember how prophecy works. It tells of what's going to happen, and there's an immediate fulfilling of that. But there is often with prophecy, and if you imagine being in the airplane at 30,000 feet, there's this, often this far-off fulfillment as well, and we see that again here with Micah. And so he's giving this, this dismal news, and then he interrupts it. 
to announce words of hope to the people. It would be in verse 2 then that Israel would come to know and still understands to this day that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. The promised one, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, the king who would sit on David's throne forever, would be born in Bethlehem. Little, tiny, insignificant Bethlehem. Now that's what Micah calls it. And that's hard for us to understand because Bethlehem isn't tiny and insignificant today. It's, it's on the map, so to speak. It's a tourist spot. I didn't Google how many people a year visit Bethlehem, but I would say it's a lot. Uh, there are tour buses. Um, every time I've been, there have been tour buses lined up, people coming uh, to, to, to visit this small, tiny, insignificant place. Beyond being the birthplace of David, it really had no notoriety. And although most of us don't know much about the book of Micah, this is not probably one of our favorite books to read in terms of our quiet time or something. Most Christians and most Jews know Micah for two verses, Micah 6.8. What is it that God expects of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? That gets painted on plaques and so forth and in our house. The other passage is Micah 5.2, that the, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. This is something Jews even recognize. You remember that when, when uh, the wise men came and Herod got news... He began asking, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? Where's this king supposed to be born? And they answered unanimously. Everybody knew that the king was going to come from Bethlehem. And so Micah writes, too little to be among the clans of Judah. What does Micah mean by this? Well, he's referring to some of the old lists that were made that listed the clans of the tribe of Judah, including one in Joshua 15 that doesn't even mention Bethlehem. That's how little she was, this tiny little town that's not even mentioned. From this small place would come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Several things that stick out to us. The first is that he is coming for who? God says, for me. Unlike many of the other leaders and rulers in, Israel's, in Israel who came for themselves, self-centered, which is often what leaders either are, people that, people that get in leadership, that's a lot of times what their, their motivation is, or our tricky hearts, sometimes once we get there, we, we start to become selfish because we see the power or the glory. And this was no exception in Israel. And God says, this one will come and live selflessly. He will also come as a ruler, meaning that he would come to fulfill the Davidic covenant, to, to sit and reign on the throne of David, not just in a, in, a, in a life, but for eternity, forever and ever. And then third, we see that his coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. This is Micah's way of saying he is eternal. This is the same name that Daniel gives to him in his prophecy in Daniel 7, ancient of days. So what is Micah saying? This isn't a mere man. This is God who is going to come and be with us. His coming of old also reveals a connection not only to who he is as the Ancient of Days, but also what he is going to do. Jesus is going to come as the Messiah to reveal the Word of God. Think of John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was what? With God, and the Word was God. 
And then later in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. What? Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus' unity with the Father. He was with God and was God. That He would come then and reveal that glory of the Father in the flesh before our eyes. This is what Micah is announcing. That God would not just send a mouthpiece as He had through His prophets to give a specific word, but that God would put on flesh Himself and reveal His word to us in the flesh. It is as if God is saying, I'm going no longer to just tell you about myself, to give you hints and shadows of who I am. I'm going to come down to you and live right in front of you. I'm going to live with you. And that's exactly what we see in the person of Jesus, the Son of God. That's what the writer of Hebrews was getting at in those opening words that we read. It's what Paul explains in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus came, born under woman, fulfilling that promise given to Eve in the garden, right? Born under the law, under the curse itself. He bore that for us so that He might redeem us from the curse that we could not remove ourselves. So Jesus came to glorify the Father by putting the words of God in skin and bones right before our eyes. Jesus is the revelation of God to us, revealing everything God ever said, and fulfilling everything that He ever promised. The second thing that we see in verse 4 is that Jesus came in the majesty of the name. Jesus glorifies the Father by coming in the majesty of the name of the Lord His God. Now God revealed Himself to His people through His names. His names tell us something. We don't do this as much anymore. We give names that sound cute or are in... um, I was going to say fad, but that trivial. I'm not saying that it's, it's faddish to name your kids. But, I mean, they're names that kind of come. And everybody, you know, you, they do statistics. And there are a lot more people named this than that during different periods and generations. That's how we choose names. But the names of God revealed who He was. And if you've ever learned certain names of God, you know that they all have significant meaning. And so God had revealed Himself to His people by His names. The very first name of God that we see in Scripture is what? Elohim, the mighty one, the all-powerful one, the one who created. Soon after that, we see Jehovah, that God is Lord, that He is a relational God who knows His people and draws His people to Himself. When Moses uh, stood before the burning bush and God had commanded him to go, he said, who do I tell them sent me? And what does God say? Tell them I am Sent you, And there we have the name of God, the self-existent one. And then we see Jesus pick up those names and use those names to show His divinity in His earthly ministry. And so Micah is announcing that to, his, to the people in this, that Jesus has come, would come, the Messiah would come in the name. If you think of Jesus who spoke over the wind and the waves, putting on display His power as the Almighty One, the Creator... Jesus forgave sins, demonstrating that He is Jehovah, the Lord. In John's revelation, we see that the risen Christ says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the self-existent one. 
And so the Messiah would come according to Micah in the power of the name. And Jesus not only did that, he demonstrated his oneness with the Father by fulfilling the name, by meeting its definition. We don't have to look far to see another name that pops up here in Micah 5.4, that he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. This is a name that we often hold very dear in times of trouble, that the Lord is our shepherd. David uh, gave this, this, this name great meaning in the 23rd Psalm. But Jesus also said, I am the good shepherd. And he adds to this, not only does the shepherd provide and care and lead by streams of water, but the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So David understood the good shepherd who provides. Jesus reveals himself as the good shepherd who does that, but also becomes a ransom for many. God is our redeemer. But there's something more then about his redemption. He doesn't simply pay the price. His redemption comes at His own expense. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And so Jesus has come also as the Word. In verse 4, we see that Jesus has also come as the light. Micah doesn't use this word. He says rather that He will put His glory on display to the ends of the earth. So it isn't that God's glory then is limited to this Middle Eastern country, to the nation of Israel. His his glory is displayed in all of creation, all over the world, in general revelation. But there's this special revelation that has come to the Israelites up to this point, and the Messiah is going to change all of that. He is going to change the glory that is the Father's and put it on display to the ends of the earth. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so we can say that Jesus came to shine the light of the glory of God so that those who believe in him would have the light of life. Jesus would later give marching orders to his disciples and tell them to do what? To go into all the world, go to the ends of the earth. This is what Micah was talking about. So Jesus gives these marching orders to his disciples, go to the ends of the earth. This message is not limited to ethnic Israel. It is for all peoples. And we see this in Isaiah's prophecy, a uh, similar one that we read this morning. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So Jesus brings the glory of the Father as the light of the world. And then finally in verse 5, we see the Messiah would come not simply to bring a message of peace, but in verse 5 it says, He shall be their peace. He doesn't work toward peace. He doesn't try and establish peace. He is our peace. This announcement comes with the connection of yet another name of God, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah announced this, that the Messiah would be the Prince of Peace. It is a reality that our peace that is ours in Christ that surpasses understanding is not something that we can find apart from Christ. Jesus says it's not something the world can offer you. It is an incredibly personal peace because Jesus gives us himself. We read in John 14, 27, the words of the Messiah, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Those are words of comfort. Words that we might read to ourselves or words that we might share with someone else to comfort them. 
But the problem with words, and particularly words that are well known, is that they can seem trite. They can seem cliche. They can lose their power and their emphasis and sound just like words. And so we struggle sometimes. Do I say these words? Do I try and give these words of comfort? Well, that's not at all what Jesus is saying to his disciples here. In fact, if we back up just one verse, let me reread it now with the previous sentence. In John 14, 26, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You see, Jesus has given us himself and his spirit. He's given us his peace to not only be ours in some, some external sense, but to be quite personal, to be quite internal. The Father, Jesus says to us, is sending the Spirit to always be with you, to never be away from you, to literally dwell within you. And so when Jesus says, I'm giving you my peace, he says, I'm not just giving you words, I'm giving you myself. And so because the Messiah has come, as Micah announced, peace is not something that we have to earn or seek or, 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 or pursue. It is ours in Christ. Now, I need to add just a couple of things. We could stop there. We could say, hallelujah, Christ has come. These are true. These things matter. Let's, let's just make it a little more personal for us today. The glory that the Son brings to the Father... And the glory that the Father has manifested of the Son is of great benefit for us right here and right now. Christmas is a time that is wonderful. It's especially true for kids. It's why we like being around kids at Christmas, maybe not for long, but at least a little bit, you know, because we see in them this joy and this excitement and so forth. Our own kids, of course, we always love being around talking about other people's kids. Um, and so we enjoy that. But it's also a time that's incredibly difficult. And it is, it is for a number of people. And this is something that we used to not talk about. It's being talked about more and more. I think it's good that we talk about this because it reminds us that, one, we're not alone in this. You're not alone if Christmas is hard for you. There are others that Christmas is very difficult for you. And it doesn't mean that all of Christmas is hard for you or all of Christmas is great for you. There, there are pieces that are wonderful and people, pieces that are difficult. And so the fact that Christ has come for who Micah says he has come as is incredibly meaningful and personal for us right here and right now. His word, his name, his light, and his peace are all ours. His word, all scripture breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that what? That we might be complete, equipped for every good work. God has given us His Word. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted us to what? His precious and very great promises so that through them you may be partakers in the divine nature. This is the hope of the gospel at Christmas, that God has given us his word, his name. Jesus is the good shepherd. We talked about that. He's also the vine. He's the bread of life. He's the author of our faith. He's the great high priest. He is the one who is interceding for you at all times. 
That means when you feel like you're alone or that no one else cares or that no one's praying on your behalf, you have one who never tires, who never is, is, is weary or goes to sleep, who is interceding on your behalf right now and always, Jesus, the great high priest. All of his names are declarations to us that he is for us, that we can rest in these truths and find comfort and protection and life and hope. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We may feel like we're in the dark sometimes. There may only be a small glimmer of light that we can see, or we may not be able to perceive any at all. But we know that Jesus is the light, that light is ours in him. As we go to him, that he is our light and in him we see light. Jesus is also our peace. And by giving us his spirit, his peace is with us forever. Even when we don't feel it. And frankly, there are times where we don't feel it. And this is why we run back and we we put our claws into truth. And we hold on to what we know is true. Because in Christ is our peace. It not only serves to comfort us. Paul says that it guards our minds. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So this means that when we wrestle and when we fight and when things don't make sense and when stuff doesn't add up, that we go to the one who is our peace, who guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So this coming of Jesus, born to reveal the glory of the Father is a reason to rejoice not only at Christmas, but every day because His hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through His Spirit who has, given, who has been given to us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this hope of the gospel that You have come to, to put on display the glory of the Father is not something that seems far, far away back in the book of Micah or even just a little less further away at your coming on this earth, but that this hope would be fresh and real and, and vibrant right before our very eyes today, that you have revealed to us the word, that you are light, that you are peace. Lord, that you would use these truths of who you are for us and what you have accomplished as our Redeemer to give us not only great joy, but great hope as we face whatever it is that tomorrow holds. Lord, would you take these truths, melt our hearts, drive them deep down into our hearts that we might be filled with joy and live lives that give a testimony to this hope that we have. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.